everybody. This is Peter Ravella, and welcome to the American Shoreline Podcast. I'm here today with my co-host, Tyler Buckingham, and a very special guest, Dan Martin from Chicago, Illinois. Tyler, I think it's going to be a really great show today, and we're looking forward to hearing from you, Dan. Absolutely, Peter. It's, uh, it's obviously great to be here today with uh, the incomparable Dan Martin, uh, our uh, coastal economic guru. Dan, how are you doing today up in Chicago? Very good. Um, apparently, it doesn't know that it's October outside. It's supposed to get into the high 80s today and the high 90s tomorrow. <laughs> so uh, I, I, I think, uh, you know, we're, we're getting the joy of climate change every day up here. Summer baseball weather. The Cubs are in the playoffs, aren't they? Did they win last night? Ugh. I don't know. I don't. They lost. They're out. Uh, they lost. They lost in a in a long extra innings game, two to one. Uh, uh, the the Colorado Rockies uh, have punched their ticket into the postseason. <laughs> well, sorry, Dan. I know you're not a huge baseball fan, but people in Chicago are not feeling great this morning about that. I'm sure, unless you're a White Sox fan. But, uh, well, actually, I'm more of a Sox fan, so uh, as a Southsider, but uh, but I do feel bad for the Cubbies and their fans. It was nice to have them doing so well. Well, we, before we jump into the uh, introducing you and your podcast, we have to take care of a little business, Tyler. Yeah, uh, this show, along with all of our shows, are brought to you by the American Shore and Beach Preservation Association national conference. Uh, Folks, you've heard us say it time and time again, this conference is the number one event for uh, beach and shoreline science and engineering and policy in America. Uh, We will be there. Uh, Coastal News Today and the American Shoreline Podcast Network will have a booth. We will be broadcasting from the conference. Peter, it promises to be a great event. It really is. Uh, Galveston, Texas, in Oct- at the end of October, is a great place to be. The water is usually still a little bit warm, and the uh, temperature is great. Uh, we'll be at the Galveston Island Convention and Visitors Center on the seawall. Uh, really a beautiful facility, and uh, it is October 30th to November 2nd. Register today at asbpa.org. <laughs> Uh, so Dan, I'll tell you, I've been waiting a long time to have this conversation because I think your show is really important to what we're trying to do with the network. And it's really, uh, great to have you as a host and, uh, on behalf of the network and the other co-hosts, thank you for, uh, agreeing to take a shot at hosting this show. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about, well, what is it called? And tell us a little bit about what you think will be on this show. Well, the, the show is, is uh, called Next Gen, as in generation, Next Gen Waterfronts, uh, the new economics waterfronts, uh, the new economics of waterfronts for many generations. And the podcast is going to cover recreational, cultural, real estate, hospitality, all the kind of development that happens near and on waterfronts and riverfronts as well. Um, and... You know, one of the things that, that you probably have heard way too much about are the millennials. Uh, but but the millennials are America's, starting next year, as of 2019, 
they will be America's largest generation ever. Uh, they're currently aged 13 to 33, uh, so they are uh, in the thick of it right now as far as uh, being at the uh, being kids in families and being people that are starting families. But they want to head to the waterfront along with the Gen Xers, the Boomers, you know, the last of the greatest generation. And and so this show is about how they plan to interact with the waterfronts, how, and when I say they, I mean all of them, and how they'll all share the waterfront, because the millennials will bring new ideas to how you interact with the waterfront, and they sure are going to bring new attitudes toward uh, all the all the things that are happening um, uh, to our weather systems and to our waterfronts around the country. Wow. Uh, they are, in fact, going to inherit it. Let me ask you um, this. Let me, and, uh, Dan, let me, sure. let me interrupt, because I didn't know this. The, the millennial generation, starting in 2019, this is age 13 to 33. I happen to have a few of those. Uh, is the largest generation ever in America? Yeah, and, and it's a little different than the boomers because the boomers, if you look at the arrival profile, in other words, when they were born, the boomers kind of arrived um, heavily at the front end, like after 1945 in the late 40s and the early 50s. Mm. And they sort of defined our, 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 our culture back then, um, you know, all of the Ozzy and Harriet sort of era things. Uh, whereas the, the millennials arrived at a, at a more even pace. So they're going to move through. They're going to be the pig in the python, but it's a long, slim python. I got uh, As opposed to our rather large, slim pig, as opposed to, you know, one big fat pig like uh, like the boomers were, which uh, I guess I'm one, so i got to be careful what I say about them. <laughs> yeah, you got to be careful what you say about the millennials, too, because I'm one of those. <laughs> we're nice to everybody. Well, we love well, the old people. We love the young people. We love we love our... Yeah, no, we do. We're, we're for everybody. Uh, but the... But, I think that I, I highlight that, Dan, only because uh, in the show title, Next Gen Waterfronts, it's really about how these people are going to uh, interact with with the shoreline, right? I think that's, and I really love that it's a forward-thinking show by a veteran who knows the damn ropes. Well, and, and I do have four millennials. Actually, I've got two millennials and two of whatever we're going to call the next generation, Generation Z. So, uh, so I'm kind of on the border. But what's critical about this generation is, is, is they're growing up in a time when our attitudes toward the, toward the waterfront have changed a bit. We're growing up, they're growing up, and their kids, you know, Generation Z and my younger kids, are, are going to be going to the waterfront and enjoying it, you know, loving it the way we have. But now it's a different kind of a waterfront. It feels like a waterfront in a lot of places that is either under a threat or... You know, there's going to be change, and nobody's sure what it's going to be. So there's more uncertainty in the waterfront that they're going to go to, but they'll be drawn to it all the same. Huh. And, and and they will help shape what changes in the hundreds of billions of dollars of shoreline investment that we have built up through the boomer era and a little bit in the greatest generation era. Wow. But the waterfronts of America have, 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 have had tremendous development for decades now. And now we're gifting that to the millennials to figure out, uh, so they can figure out what they're going to do with it in in a changing land, changing weatherscape. I guess. Wow! So that's a really kind of an important uh, starting point, a difference in the starting point. Uh, I guess back in the fifties, and when I look at the the old pictures of the city of South Padre Island in nineteen seventy, it is a sandbar with a few buildings on it. Uh, that was an undeveloped shoreline back in the sixties and the seventies, and these folks are inheriting a shoreline that is much developed, as you said, and I don't think we felt the 
the degree of threat uh, that they are going to have to contend with. No, and, and and if you look at if you look at the other factor out here too, is that American demographic you know patterns have been such that we've had a tremendous growth in a lot of po- the population of a lot of southern states, but only in the last thirty or forty years. Um, you, you know, you think of Florida, you know, rising to be in you know one of the top three states in population. Think of uh, the Carolinas, which have had so much in migration. Um, and, uh, and, and think of Texas, which, you know, went from like 15 to 29 million, um, in about, uh, uh, it's already passed, uh, Australian population and it's, uh, taken on, uh, uh Canada next in population. And, and that's happening. And you're seeing the, you're seeing the development of the Texas coastline, uh, to an extent that, that we haven't in the past. Although it may not be as strong there because much of the population of Texas uh, is in two metro areas in Houston and uh, I guess three Houston, San Antonio, and uh, um, and also Dallas. Mm-hmm. But Dallas is not really a driving distance to the beach. The other two cities are and in uh, Galveston, where this conference will be later in the month. Um, Galveston has seen tremendous change in the last twenty-five or thirty years. You know, as you're describing. Uh, and that's because of the influence of, you know, what is it now, the fifth biggest metro in the country, Houston. Yeah. So, uh, Dan, one of the things that's interesting as the uh, American shoreline has transformed, populations have increased over the past half century, uh, but the economic identity of the shorelines have, have changed as well. I mean, I think we, uh, you know, any... Any buddy can get on their computer and look at satellite image. Go on Google uh, Maps and look at satellite imagery of your favorite stretch of coastline, and uh, you will see all sorts of remnant uh, infrastructure from you know 50 years ago or older uh, that was largely industrial. Uh, but a lot of the newer uh, development that I have observed, anyway, is is more. Uh, recreationally based, residentially uh, oriented. Uh, tell tell us a little bit about the uh, how with the economic transformation of the shoreline, we have seen new economies emerge. What are those economies? And I know that you work on a number of projects like this, so I'm I'm just kind of interested to know uh, if you could color in these transformations. Sure, and, and a lot of a lot of what we've seen on the coastlines is uh, is is the coastlines moving from being um, dominated by people who have been in those small communities for generations to now being dominated by people who have only been there since they retired, or since they bought a second home. So it's almost the tale of two cities in the case of a lot of these communities where they have. A significant resident population, you know, that deserves their respect of, you know, their traditions and their being there for many years. And they've also got a lot of newcomers. And the newcomers, you know, often come at first when they stay at, you know, Airbnb or in the case of places like, um, you know, the Outer Banks where there are 16,000 giant condos, you know, each with an average of three and a half bedrooms. Uh, uh, and, and they come for a short period of time, you know, a vacation or, you know, they're going to Myrtle Beach or going to any of the Gulf Coast or uh, even West Coast communities where you can stay in a hotel, they're moving from vacation to commitment by buying housing there. Mm. And they're, they're becoming a part of the fabric. So there's almost like a, you know, sort of a, a process of a place is discovered, 
uh, when people can come and stay there. And then they, um, uh, and, and then when they like it, or if enough people like it, or if it develops a certain market tilt, um, then it becomes a residential area for visitors who now want to live there permanently and do business there. And suddenly they're arguing over whether they get good Wi-Fi mm. uh, because they want to stay connected to the rest of the world. And your mention of Google Maps is terrific because, you know, the whole, you know, we're talking, it's easy to go to the whole climate change issue when talking about coastal communities, but technology has also made a real difference. And and even infrastructure like, uh, like, you know, taking highways to this, most visitors to America's coastlines drive there. They don't fly there. Hmm. Uh, And that's why, and it's a very distributed product along a very long coastline. So it's, it's, it's a different, it's a, there are a lot of interesting differences, you know, versus say people, the mass of people to fly every year to uh, Orlando or Las Vegas or New York city for tourism purposes, they're flying in for the most part, or, or, you know, there's at least a lot of people who are flying in. Um, there aren't that many people who fly into a lot of, uh, a lot of the Carolina, uh, to the, uh, uh, even to the Jersey shore. Uh, most people drive in. So, is it, so the infrastructure, the road systems getting there yeah. have a huge impact. The roads are yeah. almost like the rivers well, Dan, of the cars. That's because you can't fit a beach ball in the overhead bin. Go ahead, Tyler. <laughs> well, uh, Dan, one of the things that we talked about recently that I wanted to uh, follow up with you on is, you know, it, what you're saying is, I, I think, very true, that uh, coastal communities have transformed. Uh, there certainly are more of them. Development has become more dense. The buildings have become more... Uh, you know, structurally resilient and engineered to withstand coastal hazards. Um, but the other trend that we have seen is that uh, because, because there is such a market for short-term renting and, you know, Airbnb, HomeAway, VRBO, these, these economic forces have created a, a, a new market efficiency where, uh, you know, the three of us could get together, buy a vacation rental, and you know each of us might use it for a week, but the rest of the time, we're not present. We're going to be short-term renting that, that son of a gun. And of course, that, that brings about a whole new uh, genre of economic activity, which is, uh, of course, generates tax revenue and can then be pumped back into the community. But it also changes the community fabric, and it changes the sense of ownership and connection with the coastal community itself. And I, I wonder if you have any thoughts on uh, how these economic transformations are affecting the, uh, how, how the, how the American shoreline is considered in the mind of, let's say, investors or, or people in the ownership community. Well, it, 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 you know, you start you start with the idea that real estate developers and development the development community in general um, <clears throat> loves something that has has value but is undeveloped. They're all about value arbitrage. They're trying to take something that has little value, add value to it, and then get out of the game by selling it off. So the the development community, you know, sees a lot of coastal communities. And they begin to redefine it, and then it begins to have implications that I think you're heading towards, which are, you know, social fabric implications. Because if you think about it, even the way we laid out suburbs in America, you know, over the last 30, 40 years, probably 50, is we always put the multifamily on the edge of, of the large development so that it would interact mainly with the arterials, the roads that go through there. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, the, but the sort of the families 
you know, the, uh, of which, you know, at some point we could talk about why we have fewer families today, but, uh, but the families are tucked inside uh, of this sort of wall of, of uh, multifamily and single family units um, because we know that, that the social development of communities based on a family or at least a household unit works a lot better or has worked a lot better um, when they're not mixed in with lots of the kind of uh, transient population you get in, in a multifamily development. Uh, but putting it more succinctly, the, 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 the situation is that real estate often brings strangers, a lot of strangers in regular weekly cycles to communities. And it can damage a community's character. It can damage a community's social life. Um, it, it, it can make a community look very faux, you know, false, because they often come with the same, the real estate developments often come with the same kind of elements. And you, you can actually kind of lose local identity in a case like, uh, you know, a lot of developments that have come up. And development tends to run in fashion cycles. Uh, it, it, the being that, that you know, and I'm not going to say currently, but in the, I'll say the past 10 or 15 years, everything wanted to be like Seaside. Everything wanted to be, you know, on a personal level. And, and, and actually, there's a real lesson in the whole Seaside example, because what was it about Seaside that everyone loved? They love the sense of community. Yeah, I think it was the uh, alleys and the porches. With the design, the architecture. Yeah, it was the valley. Yeah, it's porches. You know, know, the porches and the houses close to the street, close together, walkable, you know. Yeah, yeah. Uh, In Florida, for those who don't know, Seaside, next to, what is it, next to Destin. Which is which is a terrific comparison because, you know, in much of the rest of the Florida panhandle, uh, except the developments by the St. Joe Company um, toward the eastern end of the Panhandle, uh, we still have a lot of high rises right on the beach. Yeah. Um, but that's a product that works. It, it, it just it just doesn't it just doesn't foster a sense of community for the local resident. Got uh, yeah. So Dan, and we've uh, also this begun is, to see the difference. Uh, let me. Uh, well, go ahead. I'm sorry. sorry. Please, Can, go ahead. Huh? No, I was just going to say that's also had social implications in terms of. The locals who used to be, you know, usually agricultural based, uh, you know, employment or employment that may be based on the water itself, um, you know, as fisher, uh, fishermen and things like that, they they are switching from being something that is a sort of a, a cohesive local economy that serves the local population and lives off the land, so to speak, to being more of a servant economy mm-hmm. where they're taking care of all the visitors. Right. Most of the new jobs are in restaurants, are in um, are in uh, uh, hospitality or, or maintenance of those facilities. Right. It's not a bad thing. It's just that's different. Yeah, and uh, it's really why I think the show is well named uh, Next Gen Waterfronts. We're talking about these transformation of the American shoreline, the new economies of the shoreline, and what this next generation is going to do. But slathered on top of that whole trend discussion. Um, is the looming issue of climate change and the potential challenges that that uh, brings to the development and and waterfront use issue. Um, Here's my question. Is that topic taken seriously in the investment community and in the development community? Is it being factored in now? What do you see? How does climate change play into the whole picture that you're going to be covering? 
Well, in terms of financing, which is the mother's milk of development, um, financing is, is, is going to get progressively more challenging. Um, and, and financing isn't just new projects, it's refinancing existing projects uh, or filling in around existing projects. So financing is going to get interesting. Financing you know, tends to think in a very short time span. In other words, can we get our money out in the life next, uh, next uh, you know, 10 or 15 years? And so we're starting to enter the horizon when a lot of these communities um, are expected to be in greater danger from climate change um, you know, factors. So, so I think we're starting, I, I'm going to say that you know, 15 years from now there will be parts, assuming that everything in climate change happens as we expect it to, <laughs> We're going to run into situations where, uh, uh, and, and Mother Nature has been helping on that front. Uh, yeah. uh, you know, we're going to run into a situation where where climate change uh, is going to start influencing financing. Where you know people will say, "Well, I don't want to write a 15-year note on that, or I don't want to do a 25-year. I may not want to write a 30-year mortgage." You know, because because at the back end of that, um, uh, they will uh, the property may not be there, or maybe in a different circumstance. The other side of that is that loan originators um, are very cavalier, and that's part of what led us to the last recession, in that if they can sell something today, they're not so worried about it tomorrow. Right. And, and they're not so worried about whether the ability to pay back is there in terms of their client or customer. Huh. So, so you know, while I say that we're heading into the horizon when things might get kind of questionable, there will always be a certain number of people who won't care about that. And, and, and this is where the climate change denier community will come in handy. Um, uh, they're they're going to lose it uh, at some point because they're going to be investing in an area um, and uh, without, without being mindful of the ways that they should invest, uh, you know, which is to say uh, embracing the factors uh, as opposed to, uh, as opposed to, you know, doing what they've always done. Right. But, but there is a group, even if the, uh, the financiers can look short term because they're going to build it and flip it and get out of the game. The other financial interest that's left behind is the insurance industry, and they're the ones who stay there. So how does the insurance industry perspective play in, either in terms of premiums or policy availability? What do you, is that a factor in how the American shoreline will, waterfronts will develop in the next generation? It, it, it is in two ways. One is that historically insurance companies have been a place, one of the maybe half a dozen places to which um, developers go to uh, to get the financing for projects. Huh. So in theory, at least, insurance companies will be less, less uh, interested in financing some kinds of projects. In fact, what I understand now in the resort financing community in the U.S. is that most of the resorts that are being financed in the U.S. are being, resort, are being financed by, by private equity. Uh, and much more so than the usual sort of pension funds, insurance companies, the institutional investors that might have done that in the past. Uh, so I'm not sure if they're pulling back for that reason or they're pulling back for other reasons. Um, there are a lot of reasons why people are a little cautious about resort development in, in, um, in, in the present time. Uh, but uh, but it, I think insurance companies, and where you were heading with it, is insurance companies are vulnerable to all the claims that happen when a hurricane hits. And, and that is a problem, but there's also another dimension to that. Just like you pointed out that a lot of groups will, will, will take a, will originate a loan and then flip it and it's gone. 
Um, most American insurance companies, in fact, most insurance companies around the world, actually sell their policies to reinsurance companies. Right. Uh, so, so they don't actually keep a lot of the the risk themselves. They share the risk. Huh. Uh, there are, in fact, uh, you know, the equivalent of insurance wholesalers right. who buy you know large uh, portfolios from uh, the originators uh, and, uh, and and factor them in. Now we're talking about you know property insurance there. We're not talking so much about um, about auto insurance or, right. or things like that. Lloyd's of London kind of thing. Yeah, and and big companies like Swiss Re. And uh, in fact, if you see the the letters RE in in a company name like Swiss Re, that means they're a reinsurance company. They're not a retail one. They're out there. Uh, uh, they're out there essentially picking up uh, the slack for others. Uh, and, and they, in fact, are where, and this, when you bring up Lloyd's, Lloyd's is one of the places where in the future all the names of Lloyd's will be um, will be probably picking up some coastal development in the future because it, it, they can handle risk better. The whole point of Lloyd's is that it's an exchange where where you can find somebody who will place a, who will place a bet on, on your, uh, your your particular issue. Right, and, um, because and, uh, it, it, it is kind of a big, uh, a big financial uh, Vegas in that sense. This, uh, I have one more. I'm going to extend this one step further before we talk about. We really have it. We got to. We got to find out your background. But there's one question I want to follow mm -hmm. up on on the insurance side of things. Is what I'm starting to see, and this is happening in Texas, but you're starting to see the government step in. Of course, as a, as an insurer, essentially, we see it in FEMA post storm recovery money. We see it in the federal. Uh, flood insurance program. And we also see it in Texas in a government-sponsored wind uh, wind insurance risk pool. I mean, is that going to be part of the solution where publicly funded, basically backup is provided to these development interests? It, 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 um, it, it's going to be a factor in, <clears throat> excuse me, one way or another, simply because uh, you know, government in the U.S. Um, is 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 all about last resort, and you know whether it's Medicaid, which is a healthcare program of last resort, or whether it's you know uh, flooded flood insurance. Um, you know, the government is basically there creating you know small safety nets across the economic landscape, uh, you know, to catch us before we fall. A lot of cases, though, the safety nets are, are not so much for the people as they are for you know the the business community as well. Which isn't a bad thing because we need them to, you know, make the engine run. Um, they are the engine. So, so we have to, I think, look at at uh, at the government as probably taking a role that way, but also because economic development has never been bigger, or something called economic development, you know, where we actually have the the name for the function. Uh, it, you know, virtually every um, local and and state and and even regional governments have the words economic development somewhere in, in, in their, uh, uh, what do you call it, in their, their you know, scope of people. And, you know, yeah. Yeah, their structure. So, so we didn't have that back in the 50s, 60s, 70s, and 80s, and really only in the 90s and, and since then have we begun to think of economic development as a, as a, as a government function. Huh. And, and where a lot of that came from is that we got tired as a society of things like you know, mining towns that, you know, petered out and, uh, uh, and, and when the mine went dry or whatever, and then uh, dried up and blew away. Uh, we don't have, we're not creating the same kind of ghost towns um, uh, today in, in, in the 2000s like we did, you know, 100 years ago. Uh, we don't let communities go away. 
we we rescue communities it would seem at all costs um you know our communities are all a lot of our communities are on life support because we're not letting them go when their economic purpose has gone away so so you know to the extent that that a lot of shoreline communities might be really in trouble in at least you know the 2050 to 2075 time frame at least um, I'm going to guess that there's going to be a real, real public ramp up of, of support for those communities. Um, or alternately, if we, um, if we have, you know, gone the route of developing newer, more intelligently designed communities or redeveloping existing ones to withstand the issues, um, uh, we may let, we may let a lot of those communities go. Huh, absolutely. Um, Dan. So there's a, there's a, yeah, I mean, yeah. I mean it's, a, it's kind of a dark future. I mean, there's a bright future and there's a dark future. Well, you can uh, you can view it both ways. I mean, one thing's for certain, and that is uh, the coastline is a place of change, and a change is going to come, uh, and it always is on the American shoreline. Um, I'm reminded of uh, up in New England. Uh, you know, this is these are areas that were historically coastal areas with. Uh, massive fisheries, large fishing fleets that over the years have consolidated. Uh, the homes that were once occupied by those fishermen are now occupied as, you know, vacation homes for, for people uh, in, in Boston, uh, etc. And that is my uh, attempt to transition the conversation. Um, Dan, I'm, I'm curious to know a little bit about your background and, uh, of course, uh, kind of fill our listeners in on how you became interested in recreational economics and at the economics of the shoreline. Well, and, and, and you mentioned Boston there. I grew up uh, um, in, in Boston, um, uh, pretty close to and for a time right on Boston Harbor. And, uh, uh, and, and you know, one of the things that's interesting about Boston is uh, that it's, uh, I don't know, it's got to be 380 or 390 years old by now, probably 400 this year, I'm not sure. Uh, and, and in that time, because it was a physically constrained community, um, in other words, it's only about 20% of its metro area, which means that it doesn't have much control over what happens around it. There's lots of cities and towns. A lot of industries started, particularly seafaring industries, coastal industries, um, in, in the first century of Boston being around, and in the second as well. Uh, but not so much those, but the industries that followed had to leave because Boston was just too expensive of a place to do business because it was too expensive of, of a place to buy housing and such. So uh, like, um, uh, like Horace Greeley might have said to a generation back uh, years ago, I, I had Western man. I moved to Texas for a time and then moved to, or went to college in D.C. and grad school in Texas and then ended up at a job here in Chicago. Uh, so I, I, I have lived around and I did a number of projects in California where I would have to stay for months at a time. But my work is principally in land use economics, um, land use economics, doing feasibility studies, master plans. And it's brought me to the coast on, on, on many, many projects over the years, probably, you know, 40 to 60 projects. Um, and in that time, I've also traveled a lot on the American coast. And uh, I think I've been to uh, the coastlines of 30 U.S. states and Canadian provinces, and I've worked overseas a lot. So um, I actually currently I'm working on a project in the, uh, on the Red Sea uh, and uh, in the Arabian Gulf, uh, Persian Gulf, if you prefer. 
and uh, and I'm working on um, uh, you know I've worked on a lot of coastal projects in Korea and other places, uh, but I've also dragged my family along. So I might not have been crazy about the shoreline when I was a kid growing up in Boston, but now now I'm a convert largely because my wife has uh, has really a uh, really really you know made me see the beauty of coastlines because I I think there's an inner beauty or an outer beauty I guess to coastlines that we all enjoy uh, and we may have to have have it shown to us and uh, and we just sort of feel that there's something going on there where uh, the aquatic world meets the, the terrestrial one. But, you know, even my family, I've dragged them to last summer to Florida, to the Sleeping Bear, uh, Dunes National Park in northern Michigan. Um, we drove the Oregon coast and, uh, and spent a, a week on uh, Washington's Olympic Peninsula. Um, you know, growing up in Boston, I'm just familiar with Cape Cod. Uh, and, uh, and living down in Texas, I've worked on a bunch of projects and enjoyed the Texas coastline and, uh, the Carolinas as well. I've worked on a few projects on the coastline there and, and Maryland and, and many other communities along the East coast. Uh, overall, I'd say I've probably directed about 500 feasibility master plan and economic, um, impact studies of all kinds. And I did this for many years with a company called Economics Research Associates, ERA. Uh, ERA was subsumed by a larger company about uh, 10 years ago, maybe 12 years ago now. <clears throat> and, uh, and, and, uh, and so I started my own firm uh, that has offices in uh, Chicago and, uh, and in Texas. Uh, and uh, uh, we still do a lot of the uh, work that, uh, that I and my partners at ERA had done for many years. Well, Dan, I... I uh... Clearly, uh, you have a broad breadth of experience all around the American shoreline. Um, but really quickly, I would, I would love to take a minute and zoom way out and um, discuss a little bit about what economics is. And the reason why I think this is important is because oftentimes, I'm sure all, all the coastal professionals and government folks out there who are listening have uh, at one point picked up an economic study, a report, and read it and understood that there are projections and of course there's dollar signs and numbers. But one of the interesting things about what you do is that you study more on a theoretical level uh, human preference and how uh, we socially and culturally value things. And I was wondering if if through that lens you might uh, give kind of a broad overview of how you apply that theoretical uh, understanding to your work on the shoreline. Well, that, that, that is a, that's a, a good question because when people think about, um, <clears throat> excuse me, development economics, uh, land use economics, um, uh, it, it's easy to, to miss the fact that it, it is all about people. And it's all about figuring out um, who are the people that are coming to a place, where are they coming from, um, why they chose that place. And uh, it's, uh, it's a very sort of Freakonomic view of the world, you know, where you're looking at things from, from uh, asking questions and answering questions as opposed to, you know, necessarily, um, you know, looking at, uh, at, you know, Keynesian economics or, or something like that. It's, it's very much on the retail, on the, where the rubber hits the road. And in that case, 
in this case, rather, it's it's where the rubber tires hit the road as 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 people are driving from. Like, how is it that that so much of the business in Myrtle Beach ends up coming from Ohio? You know, why is it that you know the uh, the coastline of of Florida, the Panhandle, uh, why is that so dependent actually on the Midwest? And and how is it that you go from one community in the in the Panhandle to another, and you find out that well, this one's dominated by people from Detroit. This one's dominated by people from Chicago, uh, you know, that they're coming from specific places. And, and so, so really what we're looking at is the movement of people and how do people get to the, how do people get to the, to the, uh, to the waterfront? How do they get to the, you know, the American shoreline and how do they enjoy it? Um, and, uh, and, and so it's about where they can come from, how they can get to where they're going. And, um, and, you know, and, and that's and that's trickier when, when, as I mentioned earlier, most trips to the coastlines are by car. Something like eighty-five percent of all trips to the coastlines are by car. And then the uh, other, could be higher. Dan, then the other question: What do they want to do? What do they want to do when they get there? Yeah, what what do they want to do? And and that actually is an interesting one. And that's where the whole generational thing comes into play. Because, um, you know, we can all sort of picture what a 50s generation might have done when they went to Miami. Uh, you know, the kids will play in the beach and, you know, mom and dad might sit and have a drink or, or, or um, you know, uh, or something like that. At least that would be the image most of us have. Um, or, you know, what people do when they go camping. There used to be a lot more camping where you go to a campground you know, with a tent. I uh, remember those. Yeah. And, uh, and you would, uh, and you would you know, basically have the kids just playing the campsite and down by the lake. Now the uh, the camping industry, broadly speaking, is is a lot of RVs, and uh, a lot of RVs are kind of expensive beast. They're like two hundred thousand and above. Yeah. Um, so uh, so so actually catering to the rolling market, in that case, a real different rubber tire market, is something that we have to contend with. That we need to uh, to to think about probably more than we have in the past, but uh, but also just in terms of um, of the generations where. The millennials are physically um, active in exploration. Um, they, every generation has its own new set of, of activities that they like that the prior generation um, might not have had. Uh, when I was growing up, nobody played soccer. Um, now my kids play soccer, but uh, soccer is passe in communities where lacrosse has taken over. Well, it's true also of the kind of sports that we engage in when we're at the beach. Um, even the range of you know, play mechanisms, or not play mechanisms, but, you know, inflatables and stuff like that has gotten kind of crazy in, in recent years, um, you know, with the ability to source inexpensive playthings from China and, and other Asian countries. You know, well, what you, we do when we get to the beach has changed a lot. And you see, you know, you see people when you go to the shoreline now, younger couples, they'll have a baby in a jogging stroller. They may be working out and, you know, taking a jog. They may be, there's a lot more you know, people bring mountain bikes. There's the kind of activities seem to be to be changing. And, and I guess what you're saying, that's generational. That's what the next gen shoreline is about, partly, is about those activities. It, 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 it is. It is. And, and the last gen uh, show version of this would have talked about the growth of golf, you know, the 100 plus um, golf courses uh, in uh, uh in South Carolina, uh, that are near the beaches, uh, you know, but now 
golf participation rates have plummeted from, you know, 15% or so to about six or 7%. Huh. Um, and, uh, so now, now we're talking about golf course reuse. The golf, just a golf course dies every day in America. Well, you know, I've, uh, I've, and gets reused. I'll tell you, I went to Edisto Island earlier this year. I was doing a driving trip traveling down from North Carolina down to Jacksonville, Florida through the Carolinas and, and staying in these small beach towns. It's, part of the American shoreline I really wasn't familiar with firsthand. And Edisto Island, a fascinating sea island, amazing history, but there's a golf course on the island. And it's down at the end. It's, you know, the exclusive gated kind of community. I went up and I said, hey, do you think I can play around? And uh, they said, sure. They set me up. I was the only person on the golf course I could, I, the entire time. And, it, you know, it was a beautiful day. Uh, I think it was a weekday, so maybe that was it, but there was nobody there. Well, in, in the other, you know, just a few basic, if I could just shoot out a few basic you know, demographic changes that are coming, um, you know, only, only 20%, maybe 21% of America's households are households with, uh, with kids. Um, that means that almost 80% um, don't, and that's where I'm using kids as 12 and under. Uh, and, and so that's a huge change yeah. because growing up, when I grew up, everyone was a family, it seemed. And, uh, and, and the percentage of family households, in fact, the world was, was, was sort of built around families. Um, and we're seeing increasingly that, you know, with that many households or that high of a percentage of households being adult households, uh, adult-only households, um, you know, the tenor of a lot of resorts and destinations has changed a lot. And families tend to go to a few specific destinations and destination areas like Florida, uh, specifically Orlando, um, more than any other sort of category of a household that's an adult household, which can, which can spread out to wherever the people who are interested in can go. But, you know, the diversity of the country is also changing, and that's one of the things that's undermining golf demand. And that is that, quite simply, African Americans and uh, Hispanics and Asians uh, not so much Asian, but um, and Asian is kind of a terrible term because there are so many different cultures that we're lumping together there, but um, uh, and, and each culture with its own set of behaviors. But all of those groups um, uh, are less likely to golf, hmm. uh, so they're they're you just you're just not seeing the demand. And now that now that you know, starting with I think it was 2014, every um, uh, or the American birth profile is that the majority of all births in America. Um, uh, are, uh, are 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 non-white, other than white. So you know, as 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 the diversity begins to impact the the destinations and the choice of destinations, and as you point out, the activities you're engaging when you get to the destination, and perhaps how long you stay. That that is those are all important. Huh. And you know, with kind of a hollowing out of the middle class, which is hard to argue with now. The data's in. Um, we may find that a lot of coastal destinations are much more value-oriented coastal destinations because, frankly, that's what people can't afford. And uh, we may find new ways to, to get um, lower incomes to the house, to the coastline as, as they want to. The other products aren't going to go away because what's happening in the big picture is the population continues to grow. Is that, you know, we're still rocketing towards 75 million. Dan, just for my benefit, you said maybe an increased focus on value destinations. By that, you mean economically, sort of 
economical. Uh, yep, exactly. I mean, it, 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 you know, we, we you know, the, the millennials who we started talking about. More affordable. Millennials. More um, affordable, thank you. <laughs> yeah, more yeah, affordable. It, it, it's, <laughs> well, this, it's this well, very high-end and very low-end resources, uh, you know, and I've just finished reading a really interesting article about the, the economic transformation that's going on in, in some documented parts of the coast, uh, that it's becoming more expensive. You have to be wealthier to get there. And so it's that hollowing out of the middle class. So you get this high-end uh, transformation going on. And I've seen that. Of course, I think anybody who's worked in the coastal, as a coastal professional and been around the American shoreline can attest to that kind of personally. But then there's this maybe lower-end component that you think is uh, maybe emerging or starting to be more important? I, I think it certainly is there, and uh, and it's it's only going to get bigger. Now, that, that doesn't mean that the high-end resorts, you know, need to quicken their boots necessarily because, um, yeah. you know, uh, um, upper-middle-class and upper-class uh, households uh, still have children, and um, uh, though not as many, and they're, they're more diverse in terms of uh, national origin or race, uh, but uh, but those households um, uh, will still want to stay in the in the classy places, and the classy places will need to um, will need to uh, uh, will need to adapt in terms of the activities and experiences they offer, as well as as while they're doing that, they're going to have to dance backwards and in high heels, as the expression goes, because as they're doing that, they're going to have to figure out how they're going to handle the uh, uh, the impacts of climate change. So right. the population change the population is changing on what they want to do at the same time that um uh, that uh, uh that that climate change is, is going to impact a lot of the high-end destinations but no i think there's a i think there's a a, a real value and a marketplace that uh, um, that we need to adapt to it and you know you can see it even in the profile of the disney world hotels um what have they been primarily adding in recent years they've been adding to their you know lower end capacity um, recognizing, um, you know, that they need to uh, they need to adapt to the market, and in particular, um, a greater proportion of the family market, that is, family market families with children, um, is in is in the lower economic zone. Um, something like half of all babies born in America last year had their birth paid for by Medicaid. That's kind of a shocking statistic because what it's saying is is that. The future of America uh, is, is is being raised in in um, households that are not that strong economically, um, and uh, and you know that's only that's only going to keep the argument about do we what do we have for a social safety net and how do we fund it, uh, or do we not care about that that particular issue and 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 instead you know focus on on you know the the individual wealth of uh, of households that are past that. It's, it's interesting. Uh, you know, the Dan, adults only household. It's interesting you say that, Dan. Uh, I um, one of the trends that I've noticed, and of course I've, I'm not backing this up with any data. This is just an anecdotal uh, Tyler's observation segment here. But we, we know in Dan's world is, is sort of <laughs> yeah. Go ahead. But but, but um, I uh, I have noticed that in uh, more uh, this is specifically with regard to this short term rental. Uh, uh, movement change that we've seen over the last 15 years with Airbnb and HomeAway and, and these these uh, mobile app based and, and internet based companies that uh, allow people to short term rent their homes 
Uh, what I've noticed is that the higher end communities, uh, communities with, with greater wealth, uh, have had a uh, greater success in pushing back and restricting uh, that kind of behavior. Um, whereas more modest communities have had less, uh, I don't want to say success, but have been less inclined to restrict that, that kind of behavior. And of course, the reason, I mean, it seems intuitive to me that the reason why is that uh, in, in communities where, hell, you need to make a buck, you need to, you need to offset the cost of having that particular property, short-term renting is a convenient way to do that. The other thing it does is when you're short-term renting, of course, it changes, we, like I said earlier, it changes the community. It's going to change the character of the neighborhood, of course. But it also, in the case of the American shoreline and waterfront communities, it creates access. It is a more affordable way to visit the shoreline if you wanted to rent a house for a couple days with your family or with your girlfriend. You can cook in the kitchen. You can. There are ways that you can... Uh, uh, slim down your your cost profile on that trip and it allows you to experience the beach more affordably. So I think that that's kind of an interesting little wrinkle that that I've observed certainly kind of as a as a recent trend. Well, going backwards from what you said here at the end and back to the beginning, um, I, I I think you are you are onto something with the affordability of Airbnb and VRBO and and the other uh, services like those, and we're going to see more of those, um, or we're going to see more of a market like that uh, in the coming years. Um, I, I'm the youngest of seven, and uh, and, and uh, my mom and dad loved going out and seeing places and travel. Um, in those days, the way that was affordably done was to pack all of us into a, into a big station wagon, if you remember those, the real ones, not these little ones. Uh, and... Uh, uh, and these are the days before seatbelts when you could put five people on the second row. Uh, and, and they would take us camping. And so we did a lot of camping all over the eastern seaboard, or at least in the northeastern part of the seaboard. And um, we were up and down the coast uh, because, as you say, my mom could set up a camp stove and cook uh, and, uh, uh, and then sort of, you know, release the hounds, release all of us into, into the surrounding area, uh, you know, on the campground and have fun for a week or more, or, you know, in some cases, uh, just long weekends. So the VRBO and the, um, and the, uh, and the Airbnb uh, mechanisms allow us to do that with real houses, which is also reflective of, of the, the increasing demand for, you know, higher level accommodations in American society in general. We won't put up with a lot of the old roadside hotels uh, although sometimes when they're uh, when they're redeveloped as being sort of period pieces, we'll love to pay extra to stay in something that looks very fifties or sixties. Um, but back to your point about about the, the restrictions and some of the some of the uh, gated communities is is that there's kind of an interesting thing going on there. If we're talking about a sort of a middle class local community with um, uh, as a as a vacation destination um, somewhere on the shoreline, um, there are a lot of small businesses in those towns. And those small businesses, the restaurants, the shops and such, um, you know, the main street, if you will, uh, they love people coming. So they're actually embracing the whole VRBO, the, um, you know, the, the Airbnb uh, short stay, you know, the sharing economy. They, they want the sharing economy to come to their town because that means more business. 
And the communities often are happy to see it too, because they should, if they're not, they should be collecting some sort of hospitality tax on those on those short stays or those stays in private lodging as well. And I think in, in, in you're going to see a lot of those communities actually begin to try to become more effective in the in, in the sharing economy marketplace uh, as market participants. And that gets circles back to the whole economic development. Economic development in the coastal community today is becoming more effective at reaching the VRBO and the Airbnb markets and all of the other sharing economy things, even even bicycle programs, so that people can you know use one of the bicycle programs to run a bike for the day to go up and down the shore. On the other hand, you're seeing you know what a lot of a lot of the high end communities, the gated communities, you know their initial sale, part of their you know raison d'etre was to keep everyone else out. So they are going to continue to have homeowner, uh, you know, regulations about doing that because they are trying to maintain the patina, at least, of, yeah. of, of uh, uh, what's the name, of, of exclusivity. The problem they're going to run into, though, is the ones that do have golf courses, like the one that you, Peter, played on, um, those are going to realize that, that if they have a changing population, uh, in, in their midst, um, that will allow them to not have to confront the issue of closing the golf course or other amenities. Um, you're going to want to have, and, 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 and the argument is going to become, you know, literally a, a development to development, hand to hand combat over, over whether you allow the, the sharing systems, the sharing economy into your community because allowing the sharing community into the community is likely to be able to uh, is likely to be able to bring more kids who will use pools, who will eat more, who will, you know, who yeah. will do things and support the internal economies. So it's, it's going to be an interesting battle. Well, yeah, and, and you know the expectation is 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 is, is going to the expectations of people are going to tilt toward wanting more of a sharing economy everywhere. Well, the, I think the market's going to speak, and and depending on your level of affordability, I think tell you how much you're going to listen uh but uh but I, I it's one of the reasons why i i want to thank you for doing the show i think the this podcast the next generation next gen shorelines next gen waterfront show is foundational to the whole network uh the studies the economic feasibility studies that you work on and many other professionals do are critical to local government decision makers this is how they evaluate and decide. That's true for government decision makers and private sector investor decision makers. I have, in my professional experience, worked with local governments who read these studies and are making investment decisions or commitments, either directly or through their economic development commissions or their tourist development councils or whatnot, are all based on this sort of understanding of the market. It affects local government. I, I can foresee on my local government podcast uh, talking about this subject a lot. And, and then I think about Tyler's show on the Beach Shack, which is going to be on coastal real estate. How the, the short-term rental market fits in is going to be based a lot on the understanding of the trends and analysis that you work with. And, in other words, I think the information and understanding that, that this podcast touches on is going to have a great effect on the conversations that occur in local government and in real estate and in the engineering podcast because of the financial investments necessary for shoreline management. I mean, it's everywhere. And 
A lot of us who work in the coastal profession are not as familiar as we should be with the work that market analysts do. And I just got to tell you, it's, we would be lost without it. And I'm so glad uh, the Next Gen podcast, Waterfront's podcast is on ASPN. And uh, I'll tell you, it's, Dan, we need you. Well, I, I definitely appreciate you um, asking me, and I think it'll uh, I think it'll be a lot of fun because, you know, it, it part of, at one point in our conversation today we talked about opportunities, and I think there are a lot of opportunities that are not yet fully, you know, I know the term is kind of a harsh one, but are not yet fully exploited on America's coastlines, and and I think the first person to any market is somebody who will definitely enjoy the the return on investment. So I think you know we, we need to be thinking about the, uh, the fragmentation of markets and, uh, and, and ways to serve them um, in coastal communities. There are a lot of opportunities, and there are some structural places that I think could be developed that we really haven't gotten into yet, and I think we could do more with them There's as some... a way to address particularly the, the, uh, the high end and the low end of the market. All right. Now, before we sign off, I do have one pet question. I have... <laughs> Something I've always wanted to know about when I drive down to the beach, and I've been doing it for years, is I pass the old seashell shop, you know, and the t-shirt shop, and uh, I've always been curious about this particular business. There there seems to be some semi-franchises in the t-shirt business. You, you see them repeated town to town, and when you go into these stores, I see these mountains of seashells that are, you know, if you think about how many seashell shops there are around the American shoreline and how many seashells there are, I know this sounds like a bizarre question, but I've always wondered where the hell all these seashells come from and who's picking them up and selling them? I, 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 could you take a look at that? I, I, I would that, be happy is to. That a, is that a viable that, topic, yeah, Dan? I'm only going to do that, though, if you can say this three times fast. She sells seashells by the seashore. I'm I can't, I can't do now, that. that, 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 that that's an old boomer joke. Anyhow, the, the, um, uh, no, a lot of the, well, you know, any marketplace these days generally leads back to Asia. And yeah. so a lot of the shells and such that we see are being are not local. They're not actually coming from of uh, not. wherever you're buying them. Indo-Pacific. And, and the same is true of the feature. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, and your comment about them appearing to be franchises are is kind of spot on in as much as, is, as, you know, there are a number of brokers who, you know, broker deals in certain product areas with uh, Asian producers. And, uh, and so since it all comes through those brokers or the network of brokers, uh, it, it, it comes through the network of brokers in a fairly narrow way with respect to the number of actual outlets there are. Huh. So uh, so there are, I mean, pretty much everything in American business tends from being uh, an innovation to being an organized marketplace in about a generation. And so I think um, I think you're seeing, if not actual franchises, I think you're seeing ownership groups. Well, I, I, it's, it's just one of those things I've wondered out. I don't think it needs to be the headline, but I've been curious, and I, I, I thank you. Maybe somewhere down But it's symbolic of so many things with the coastlines. Is you know, on one hand, um, you know, the reason there are so why the the shell why there's so there's a, the, there's a shell business like that, a shell company, I guess. I don't know. Uh, the uh, um, why there is that. Uh, is because uh, the the you know the supply chain back to Asia 
uh, is not terribly diverse. So, of course, there's an organization or a narrowness of the market at one point, so maybe uh, that narrowness can be exploited at the other end. Right. Um, but that's, that's true of a lot of kind of retail that happens at the shoreline. And the shorelines, unlike you know, so much of American retail, are still going to be a healthy market because people just love to shop. It's the number one activity the tourists engage in, shopping. Uh, they don't necessarily go to a place for shopping, but when they go there, it's something they typically do. Well, I mean, I, I'm a little bit facetious with that topic, but it, 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 it is, again, kind of the tie-in between economics and other issues on the ASPN uh, slate is the environmental impact of these massive shell trade. I've always been curious about it. It would be a topic of concern possibly for Jenna Valente on her show, The Sea Change Podcast, because uh, uh, you just see how, you just imagine how, what is the volume of this stuff? And they are not from, they're not local. They're Indo-Pacific primarily. And, I don't believe they're land. gathered naturally on the beach. I believe that many of them are... Yeah. are collected live. Collected live I and think, then yeah. processed to yeah. yield the shell. Yeah. So, I mean, I, just another example of the interface between the subject matters of concern on the, on the American shoreline and the underlying economic and market forces that, that influence, or if not drive, this economy. And, Behavior. Uh, yeah. Yeah, I mean, I, I guess for my concluding thought, Dan, I, I would echo everything Peter just said about uh, the critical importance of having uh, a voice of uh, economic understanding and theory on ASPN. Um, you know, one of the critical things that uh, Peter and I thought at great length about when we were kicking off the American Shoreline Podcast Network is the interconnectedness between uh, d different clusters of economic activity that exist on the American shoreline. There's the oil and gas industry. There's, of course, the beach management and engineering industries. There are... There's the tourism industry and the recreation industry and and this and of course the surfing industry. <laughs> Peter's making a wave gesture with his hand. I'm that not was sure that was shipping. That was, that was shipping. the shipping that was industry. Shipping. Very important. Yeah, they're, they're massive. But but yeah, what, I, what happens? I don't want to be on your charades team, Peter. <laughs> <laughs> what what happens here is uh, all of these different interest groups strike a. Uh, equilibrium in the way that their behaviors and their economic demands and needs fall into line in this very finite space. And uh, it is absolutely critical that we understand the economic drivers in order to understand those behaviors and how to change them. One of the things that uh, Peter and I have done is go to coastal communities that are interested in investing in coastal management and actually change the economic profile of the community. We have made it more expensive. We have added a line item on their tax bill. And that doesn't happen with the snap of a finger. It requires the society of that particular community, that network of interests, to all agree and fall in line and decide that that is a worthwhile uh, investment to make, that that cost is in fact legitimate. And Dan, your show will help us understand that and will help us understand how the American shoreline is transforming and how, as the title aptly says, how the next generation of Americans 
will take up the mantle and uh, exist within the American shoreline and on the American shoreline going forward. So we are so excited for your show. Uh, Dan, do you have any concluding thoughts? Um, not, not so much, but I, I think, you know, one of the issues that I'm hoping to address, uh, also in, and I'm going to be talking to heads of CVVs, to, uh, developers, to, uh, to, uh, uh, different kinds of developers, marina developers and others. Um, so I'm looking forward to, uh, to getting to, to share the mic with a lot of, um, interesting people, uh, who have been in the business of, uh, the shoreline, uh, one way or another for many years. So, uh, but I would also like to get into the notion of, of, of the zones of the beach. And this is something you sort of touch on with the, uh, uh, with oil and gas exploration and, you know, now wind energy off the New England coast and, uh, in other ways. And, and part of it is to think about the zones to consider, you know, there are, there's the sort of the near water zone, there's the actual water's edge. And then there's things that we can actually do fl on floating things in the, in, in the, in the uh, ocean. And then there are near shore destinations like islands. So there are a whole range of places where things can take place. And, uh, and, and how do we program them? And, uh, and how, how are we going to be going forward as far as are we going to be willing to make change? I think you hit on a real key point um, as far as, uh, as as far as you know the people uh, the people who economically you know we've actually seen a real interesting shift in American politics recently where where people are willing to support candidates who actually do not operate with their economic interest in mind, but in fact what they're doing is buying the attitude or the brand of a candidate, and 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 you know I, I think in the beach you know vernacular what's happening there is that a lot of coastal improvements that are necessary or coastal saving devices, you know, replenishing the sand on a beach, for example, they, they, um, you have to go to, uh, taxpayers who may not enjoy the beach, who may live 20 or 30 miles, but in the same County from the beach and, uh, and ask them for their financial support. And they may not recognize, um, that the economic fortunes of their area, the reason they've seen so much development and quality of life improvement uh, is actually coming from the beach destination. So they may not buy into it because right. they may not see the connection you are because one, people do not always vote in terms of economic interest. Well, you're 100% you're correct in that assessment. In, in the work that we do when we're uh, working to finance uh, shoreline restoration plans, it is absolutely an explanation of the economic framework of the shoreline and how that framework extends off of the barrier island across the bridge to the mainland to the county as a whole and when you it, it, it this is why these things take time to put together is those it is absolutely the case that that the beachfront economy is not the impact of the beachfront economy is not limited to the beachfront or to the barrier island and as i tell the folks we used to work with on the barrier island you need to be the tip of the spear as the taxpayers because the the understanding the perception in the world that that we all live in is that shoreline restoration is a direct advantage to the people on the beachfront and that's it that's all it's for it's for them so it, without them we can't talk about the larger economics because as i tell them we can't go across the bridge to the mainland to talk about tax revenue contributions from the mainland part of the county if we don't have the people on the beachfront first. And once we get the beachfront people to stand up and say, hey, 
it is absolutely essential to our interest that this project be done. We are willing to pay our share. When we have that card in our pocket, we can then go across the bridge and say to the county taxpayers at large, uh, do you realize that the beach economy is producing 25% of your property tax and, and sales tax revenue every year, or in the summer, even higher? Do you see how this affects the county in a positive way? Do you see the investment benefits to you all the way to the county, all in Florida, say, all the way to Tallahassee? And But it's that economic fabric that pulls the community together. But, you know, as you say, people don't see it very well. Especially if you don't want to pay, you don't no. want to see it. <laughs> no, no, uh, you know, uh, the, in, you know that's why you know economic interest, as I say, is not necessarily um, uh, the decision criteria for most families or, or households or whoever. They don't necessarily see their economic interest. They they may value you know the culture of an area. They may value other things more, or they may be just you know. Uh, not easily persuaded for one reason that uh, that I may not know about. That's why you have to really look at, at these projects from not just a project economics perspective, but from the market economics perspective to really look at all the markets that are involved now and in the future in connection with any project and, and, and how they will change and what their values and attitudes um, are likely to be and what you can do about that. Interesting. Can't wait for this show, Dan. It's going to be great. Uh, I think it's really important, and uh, I know I'm going to learn a lot. So, uh, Tyler, thanks for uh, coming together today. Dan, thank you for being on the show. And as always, I'd like to say thank you to Max Miller, our sound engineer, who makes us sound better than we are. And uh, we'll catch you next time. Tyler, closing thoughts. Uh, well, I delivered my uh, closing thought a second ago, Peter, but um, <laughs> we as, were reclosing. <laughs> as always, it's... Uh, we're in overtime. As always, it's a pleasure to uh, to be here, Dan. Can't, can't wait for your first show, and uh, thank you everybody for listening, and, and look forward to the next one.